I want to read something to you. We, were, it was read, we read it, Pastor Michael read it last night, uh, and we're talking about prevailing prayer. And, um, and we're going to pray in just a minute, which is a good thing to do when you're talking about prayer. But the real focus of this that's in my heart is really kind of twofold. It's not, this is not intended to be an exhaustive study on prayer. We could take years to do that. But it was really to, to encourage us, challenge us, because God was challenging me to, to believe more when we pray and therefore to ask for more and to expect. And especially in the area of prevailing prayer for souls. Now, God wants us to pray for our needs to be met and other people's needs to be met and for healing, and there's nothing wrong with that. We are to do that. But the ultimate purpose, the ultimate, the most important, the highest type of prayer you can pray is to, prepare, is to pray for someone else's soul. And this is especially critical that we learn to prevail there because their eternal destiny is at stake. If we pray for someone for healing and for some reason that prayer is not answered or it's answered but we don't, it doesn't turn out the way we want, well, it just affects their life here and everything else just affects their life here. But this prayer affects the eternal destiny of souls and it is therefore the highest and it's the most unselfish type of prayer. It's also very often the prayer that gets the most resistance. And so we need to learn how to prevail in prayer. I want to read these two testimonies that came. I really think these testimonies are important. I'm not going to read the names, but I want to read the testimony because they're really a long line with this and the second aspect of this. This testimony is dated uh, this May 8th. My father-in-law accepted Christ on Sunday, May 6th. His family has been praying for 40 years. His family has been praying for 40 years years, and I've been praying for the last 20 years, and I've been submitting a card starting a few years ago. Do not quit. Do not quit. I've shared with the, with the prayer group that comes on Tuesday night, which you're all welcome to, um, that one of the books that's had such an impact on me lately, and I've read several biographies of George Mueller, but this last one I was reading talks about his confidence that God answers his prayer. And as he came down to the end of his life and he was meeting with somebody that helped write one of these biographies, and he said, well, have, have everybody you've ever prayed for salvation been saved? And he said, not yet. He says, they will be even if I'm not here because my prayers go forth and they do not return without being answered. And that was as a result of a life of over 56 years of seeing prayers answered to support a, a, a series of orphanages in Bristol, England, for which he never asked a human being for a dime. He always made his request known to God. And God provided the buildings, provided the food, and provided the closing for about 2,500 orphans over a period of at least 50 years, faithfully, because they learned to just go to God. The man had confidence that God answered his prayers. So he would not entertain the idea that there was anybody he ever prayed for for their soul that didn't end up getting saved, even if it was after he left. And that's the confidence that I want to have. Forty years. This is a testimony from this church. I've got a second one here. So the lesson here is don't quit. You understand the, the enemy is the only one that wants to tempt you to quit. Why would he tempt you to quit? Did you ever think about that? Why would Satan tempt you to quit? He's not trying to help you. He's not 
telling you, why don't you quit so you can go into somebody else? He wants you to quit because he knows if you don't quit, he loses. You do understand he's a liar, you, and he's the father of lies, and there's no truth in him. He'll use the truth, but he can't tell the truth. And I've gotten this picture, I haven't thought of it for years, but this picture I've had of, of spiritual battle with him, and when you take the word of God, it's as if you've taken your, your foot and you put it on his throat. That's kind of a picture of victory, isn't it? But he is such a liar that even with your foot on his throat, he's going to tell you you're going to lose and this isn't going to work. Because all he wants to do is get you to quit praying. Forty years. Forty years. Here's another one. My husband gave his life to the Lord recently. I've been praying for years along with the church, placing salvation cards in for prayer. God's been showing me that he's been working on him for years through song ministries and prayers and finally received Christ uh, on a Wednesday night service not too long ago. Praise be to God. Well, I think we ought to give the Lord a hand clap. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I've been praying for you. you. Want to know what I've been praying for you? I've been praying it for me too that God would begin to put His compassion for souls in our heart. That God would begin to put His compassion for souls in our heart because if it's not coming out of our heart, we're going to pray for souls out of an obligation and out of our mind. And there's no power in that. The power is when it comes out of our heart. And that's what we're learning how to do. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless what we're about to do and to continue to open the eyes of our understanding as we seek His Word. Father, we thank You for these testimonies. We thank You that You are faithful, that You are faithful to hear and to answer our prayers. Forgive us, Lord, for our impatience and how easily we've quit and been discouraged in the past. But we're coming back again to You. We'll let go of the failures of the past and the times we've quit, and we come back to You again, and Lord, we start again. If some of us are discouraged tonight, we lay that discouragement aside, and we do what the Apostle Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. And we come to press into You again, to teach us how to pray, to press into You again, to teach us how to prevail in prayer. Jesus, your disciples came to you and they talked, asked you to teach them how to pray and you taught them, Father, Lord. And now we're asking you to teach us how to pray and prevail in prayer, to get results and to expect those results. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit's been given to us as a teacher to lead us and guide us into all truth. We thank you that your word's been given to us to reveal your will and to reveal your ways and to reveal your principles. And we ask you by the Spirit of God tonight to open the eyes of our understanding to see what it is that we need to see tonight, each one of us. And we thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And amen. Well, the principal prayer we've been looking at, or scripture, for prevailing prayer is, of course, James chapter 5, where where uh, the, James writes to the, to the church and says that, that if any of you are sick, call for the elders of the church and let them anoint him with oil. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven him. And then he goes on and says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or prevails much. That's what God expects. God's side of prayer is he is expecting, he is provided for prayer to accomplish much. 
And we started out by asking ourselves that soul-searching question, do I really expect my prayers to get answered? Do I really expect much results from my prayer? It's interesting because I was thinking of this, uh, I don't remember what I was listening to today. I was listening to some teaching from one of the sources I was listening to today. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And I was talking about, uh, uh, oh, I know, I was, it was when Tony Cook was here. And he was talking about a young boy that was praying over the communion service and he stuttered. And, and he was so embarrassed because he stuttered so badly and went back to his seat and sat down and just hung his head in shame. And he was so embarrassed about the kind of the way he prayed. And as they were sharing that testimony, of course, the point of the story was an elder went over and put his hand on him and basically say, whatever it is you choose to do for God, I'm behind you a thousand percent. The point was encouraging somebody and being an encouragement to people. But, but, I, but as he was sharing that story, I was thinking about how many times I've heard people say, and I've thought and probably have said at times, you know, that wasn't a very good prayer or, you know, I didn't do a very good job of praying that. And, and that's because we think of prayer as a performance. Well, that didn't sound too well. That didn't come across too, 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 too well. You know, that didn't sound quite as eloquent. Boy, then that person pray. My goodness, you should have heard the way they prayed. As if it's a stage performance or we're here to, to measure and evaluate each other's prayers or our own prayers. Well, wait a minute. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is asking God for something. So prevailing prayer is not beautiful prayer. Prevailing prayer is not prayer that sounds good or doesn't sound good. It sounds eloquent or it sounds very feeble. Some of the most powerful prayers I've ever prayed is, Help! <laughs> There's nothing eloquent about that, but it worked. So the purpose of prayer is to communicate with our Heavenly Father, to ask Him to move in some behalf and to see results. That's what prevailing prayer is. We get our eyes on the wrong thing. We get our eyes on what we're doing and not what it's really for and what it's really about, which is asking God and seeing Him move in the situation and seeing results take place. So we've begun to look at, we've looked at what, what prevailing prayer is. It's prayers that get answered, whether immediately or down the road. It's getting results in our prayers and the Word of God challenges us to expect those results. And in fact, what we're learning is if we don't expect them, we're most likely not going to get them. So we began to look at, there's some principles, and we spent some time again last week talking about the difference between a principle and a law, because we often see these principles as some kind of requirement or law, as if God's got a checklist. He's got five, he's got a formula with these five things you've got to do, and he goes down this list to check them off to see whether you did them all, and if you didn't, he says, sorry, you don't get an answer because you didn't get them all right or you didn't get them in the right order. And all of that we've seen is focusing on me and how I pray. And Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6, what we looked at in the beginning, he says that's what the Gentiles do. The Gentiles have no covenant with God. They have no relationship with God. They have no basis to go to God as a father and expect him to do anything. So the only thing they can be looking at and trusting in is how they pray. Because what he says is, the gent don't be like the Gentiles, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words, which is how they pray. But don't you know that your father relationship, who's in heaven, knows what you need before you pray? before you come to Him. So we've learned that prayer is communicating with our Heavenly Father out of a relationship of covenant commitment. 
And then we begin, so these are, not, these are not rules, these are not requirements, these are principles by which the very nature of God and where He exists and where His answers exist, and uh, we and where we exist and where, where we need it, the very difference, that gap is what the requirements are really all about. They're principles by which we receive what God has provided for us. So we used the example last time of a toaster. And the toaster only works when you plug the electric toaster into the electric outlet so that the electricity that powers that toaster can flow through it and produce the results, the heat that toasts the bread that you put in there. So it's not like there's some legalistic requirement that if you don't plug the toaster in, you're going to get punished by that you won't get toast. It's just a principle of the way electricity flows is you've got to complete the circuit in order for that electricity to produce the result. And I used the example last time because the, the first principle is out of James chapter 1, which says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him come to God and let him ask of God who gives to all generously. And he does it without reproach, but you must ask in faith, nothing doubting. So the first principle by which answered prayer functions is that it must be asked in faith. And we've looked at that from the point of view of last week of God's laying out this provision for us in the spirit realm where God exists, but it doesn't do us any good there because we're down in this natural realm where we need to see results in this natural realm. But just because we don't see them does not mean that they don't exist up there. So how do we get them from up there to down here? Because we have to believe that they belong to us. So we looked at Hebrews 11, 1, and we saw that faith is the the substance of things hope for, the tangibility, the evidence of things not seen. And I told you about the way I know that I didn't forget my wallet tonight is I reach back and I touch it. And sometimes, you know, I'll get up from a restaurant or something like that and I'll go out and get, did I remember my wallet? I reach back and touch. And because it has substance in this natural realm, I can verify that it's there. And because I can kind of feel how it forms to me, I know that it's mine. But when God has something for us in a realm I can't reach out and touch, how do I know that it's mine enough to embrace it and receive it in my life, which is what, what I need to do in order to enjoy it? Well, I can't reach here and touch it the way I can touch my wallet. So faith is, gives me the same degree of confidence that it's mine that touching my wallet gives to me. And that's what we, that's what we looked at uh, last time. And so, so what we've seen is the first requirement is you must, you must believe that what you're asking God, you're going to get. And we went to Mark chapter 11, where Jesus said, uh, Have faith in God, verse 22. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he said shall become to pass, he sh shall have, shall have, whatsoever, shall have. You notice there's no... There's no hesitancy in God's promises. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you received it. So when are we supposed to believe we received it? When we prayed and when we asked. Believe that you received it and you shall have it. So the shall having in this realm is after the believing it's mine in this realm. 
It's just the opposite of what our natural mind would tell us. Our natural mind will tell us, well, I know I believe it's mine when I've got it. I know it's my wallet's there when I feel it and touch it. But because it already exists in that realm, I can't feel it and touch it. And the only way it's going to get here is through faith. Faith is the straw that gets the Diet Coke from the glass into your mouth. It's the vehicle by which it comes from one realm to... It's the plug into the wall. It's the plug into the wall. So it's not some legalistic requirement. It's the only conduit by which I can have confidence in this realm that something is already mine in a realm I can't see. So it's just a... It, it, it's the only way... It's the only way... It's the only way that can happen. There's an example I thought of this in Scripture. It'll come to me. Um, a, a, such, a great, such a great example of it. it. It'll come back to me. We need to move on. All right. Okay. Now... Let's go to Matthew chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. This is just so full of faith, examples of Jesus' teaching. Now remember, Jesus said in the key to Mark eleven twenty three and 24 is Mark eleven twenty two: Have faith in God. Not have faith in your faith, not have faith in how you prayed, not have faith in what you've asked for, have faith in God, which means what God's character is like, what God's nature is like. You have to have confidence in the one you're asking if you're going to believe you're going to get it. If you go to somebody that has a reputation for sometimes coming through and sometimes not coming through, you're not going to have full confidence that what you ask for, they're going to do even if they say they're going to do, because you don't know for sure that I can trust them. So the real issue Jesus is teaching here is can we really trust God to do what he said he's going to do? Can we really trust God to answer my prayers? Is God really going to do that? Well, the key to breaking this down we saw in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus comes down off the mountain from teaching his disciples, a leper comes to him. When he come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came worshiping him, saying, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. There's two things he's saying in there. Basically, he's saying this. I know you can, but I'm not sure that you want, you're willing to. So the two things that we see in here that are necessary to, that we need to believe about God is first of all that he's willing to do it. And we spend time looking at verses to give us confidence that God is willing to do it. Mark 11.23, 11.24. We looked at the, 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 the real basis for that is 1 John 5.14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have before God. That if we ask anything that's within the bounds of His will, we know He hears us. So we know He's got good hearing. Whether I feel Him hear me or not, I want to get this through to you because we're, the, 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 the church in the United States, and we're all included in that to one degree or another, we are still so led by our feelings and our emotions. We measure things by what we feel and what we don't feel. And I feel God's presence, and that's wonderful. But what if you don't feel it? Does that mean He's not present? 
He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He said, if two or more of you are gathered in my name, I will be in your midst. That's what he said. He didn't say, look, if you, if you just work it up enough, you'll feel me there. He said, I'll be there whether you feel me or not. And we're so feeling oriented, we're so emotionally oriented that we've learned to measure God by how we feel. And if you've never learned this, your feelings are very fickled. Our emotions change all the time. In fact, we learned when we studied renewing the mind last year that you decide what your emotions are. You control your emotions. You may not feel as if you can, but your emotions are triggered by your thoughts. And you can change your feelings by changing your thoughts. I can't tell you the times I got up in the morning or sometime during the day, and it happened the other day, just starting to feel discouraged. And then I go back, well, what have you been thinking about? And then when I remembered what I've been thinking about, no wonder I was feeling discouraged. So I'm, what does the Word say? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my mouth, continually be in my mouth. You know, I didn't get halfway through that first verse, but so it's changed how I felt. We've got to learn to do that or else we're just going to be like James chapter 1 we're going to be like this boat that's out on the waves just blown to and fro by every wind and wave he called that double minded he said let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord wow not because God's mad at him because we put ourselves in a position where we can't receive where we can't receive. And so, John tells us, this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything that's within the boundaries of his will, he hears us, and this is what we know about him. We know that this is, John's telling you, look, you know, and he wrote this near the end of his life, when he was 90 years old plus, probably on the Isle of Patmos, and even walking with the Lord. He'd been there, when Jesus walked on water. He'd been there with all through all the miracles. He'd been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'd been there when he was arrested. He'd been there when he was crucified. He'd been there when he was raised from the dead. He'd been there through all these things. And he's appeared to him on the Isle of Patmos. Maybe not before he wrote this. But Jesus, John, knew the Lord. He knew his character. He knew his nature. He, before, Jesus, before Jesus was crucified, he, he was so close to him that he laid his head on Jesus' chest during that, when they were preparing for that last supper. He knew his Lord well, and he says, this is what I know about him. Listen to what I know about him. That if you ask him anything that's within the boundaries of his will, he hears you. And this is what I know about him. If he hears you, you already have what you've asked him. So the confidence that we have is to be based on what we know about God and what he's willing to do. But there's a second point that this woman raises with Jesus, which we don't often think about. I think we often take it for granted. And I suspect that if I ask for a show of hands in here tonight, of how many of you believe this, most of us would raise our hand. But I want to challenge us to check, do we really? What she says is, I know you can heal me, but I don't know for sure if you're willing to. 
But there's some things I wonder, do we really believe he can? So the second thing we must believe about God is not just that he's willing to do something, is he able to do what he's willing to do? Because if he's willing to do it, but he's not able, that still doesn't do us any good. I'm willing that all of you have every need that you need met tonight, immediately. I'm willing for that. It doesn't do you a whole lot of good, because in myself, I'm not capable of doing that. I'm willing for you all to be millionaires. Does that sound good? But you're not too excited, because you're not too confident I could do that. So it's just as important, not that we believe he's willing, it's just as important to believe that he's able. Well, I believe God can do anything. Well, do we really? We'll probably talk about that next time. But I want to show you some scriptures about what God says about himself. Is he able? I mean, <laughs> I remember when we were out in Bible school, and we went to a healing service at a church. It was a special series of meetings. And this was a man that had an unusual ministry. The Holy Spirit used him in a, kind of an unusual way. And instead of having a prayer line to pray for people, he would call people up as he felt impressed. And we've seen that happen before. And he would go just kind of touch them and lay hands on them. And the strangest things began to happen. The Holy Spirit would begin to take over with them. And they began to, to bend and contort their bodies. They weren't doing it because the Holy Spirit was doing it. Some of them in some very strange way. There were people that bent literally over backwards. There was one gentleman that stood like this for two hours. I mean, you, things you cannot do. And it was a very light atmosphere in there because the looks on their faces was obvious they weren't doing it. And there were some of these people that, that we knew. I knew they weren't faking this. They couldn't have. And in the process of it, they were getting healed. We're watching healings take place. Now, that's not your traditional line them up and mow them down by laying hands on them. But it was the Holy Spirit working because the results were obvious. There was a young man there we knew well. His foot was broken. And they had it wrapped because they were waiting to put it in a cast. And this man had him sit down and had him hold his foot up there, touched it, and then walked away. And for two hours, his leg was up like this. You can't do that. I don't care what kind of shape you're in. When he was done, the bone was healed. But I was telling you the story from this point of view. There was someone he called that had either cancer or terminal cancer. And the moment he got him up there, he said he, you could feel the change in the atmosphere. Instead of everybody being relaxed and flowing with this, all of a sudden everybody got up tight and they started praying harder. Why? Because this was a harder thing to do in their minds. And he caught us on that, and I've never forgotten it. Because in our thinking, cancer is more difficult to heal than a headache. Right? For you and me it is. For medical science it is. But we assume, therefore, it's harder for God or harder to get that prayer answered because we don't really know what God can do. we bring God down to our level. We think cancer requires more effort to get God to move. Well, that means He's not as willing to heal cancer as He is a headache. 
but we know he's willing, so that must mean it's harder for him to heal cancer than it is a headache. See, we don't realize we're thinking this way because those are subtle thoughts and attitudes in the back of our mind, but they're critical to what we're talking about. Because that's what our faith comes through. That's what it's expressed through. That's what that because that, what we're going to look at is what you're what you're what you're able to believe sets what you'll have hope for. Because you won't hope for something you don't think's possible. And Hebrews eleven one says faith gives substance to things hoped for. So your faith can't go any higher than what you're hoping for. You following me? So the beginning of helping someone with faith is to help them to, to raise the level of their hope. Well, that hope won't go any higher than what they believe God's able to do. And what we're learning is we have a misunderstanding about God and what God's capable of. Because we think God's like us except stronger. Well, we've talked about that before. It's understandable because the only thing we've known about what people do is from people. And when we talked about how well we can trust God's Word, we've learned we can't learn what God's word, how trustworthy God's Word is by looking at other people's Word. Because we all know people, and we may be among them, that don't always keep their Word. So we're, we, right away when somebody makes a promise to us, most people that have been hurt are suspicious, cautious. And the way I was raised, I was promised things that didn't happen, so I've grown to be cautious is a better word than suspicious. So somebody says, well, I'm, I'm going to do this. Well, I'm saying, all right, let's wait and see. Let me see, you develop a track record with me, and then I'll be more willing to just step out and trust. Why? So we bring that experience over to God, and we treat him the same way. He says, prove it to us. Trust us. But Hebrews, uh, Numbers 23, 19 says God's not a man. So you've got to throw all your experiences of people out when it comes to deciding whether you can trust God because he's not one of us. The same's true here. Because when we come to believing what God can do, we tend to interpret in terms of what we know is possible. Of what we know is possible. Well, I've never seen that happen. So I'm not sure it can happen. I'm not sure it's possible. Well, let's look at what God says about himself. Let's look at what his word says about him. Let's go to, let's look at somebody who, who's an example of this. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. I love these verses because they really contain all the principles of, of faith in here. We'll start in verse 16. He's talking about being saved by grace through faith. And he's teaching here what faith is. Therefore, verse 16, it is of faith, talking about our salvation, that it might be accordance with grace, so that the promise might be certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So those who are Jews or those who are, are Gentiles that believe through Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse, this is what I want to get to, verse 17. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Now, in the presence or in the sight of him whom he believes. Stop there. So what this is saying is that 
that Abraham, talking about Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith, Hebrews, or Romans 4.17, Abraham's faith was in a promise God made to him. Your faith has always got to be rooted in a promise of God's word because what faith really is is taking someone at their word so you ought to be able to identify what the word is that you're believing or trusting in. And so Paul tells us here what was the promise that God made to Abraham that Abraham chose to believe. And the promise was that as far as I'm concerned, I have made you, not will make you, I have made you a father of many nations. It's out of Genesis 17. Notice, at that time, Abraham's about 85 years old, if I remember correctly. God had spoken to him 10 years earlier, still nothing's happened. And now God, when God speaks to him, he says, as for me, from my side of this, as far as I'm concerned, I have made you. Not I'm going to, not in another 15 years, but as of now, from my side of this transaction, from my side of the transaction, from the table that I've laid this out on, from the provision of my, from my side, I have made you a father of many nations. And then you have a child yet. So this is about how Abraham is learned to receive what God promised earlier and what from God's side was a done deal. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything that's in accordance with his will, he hears us and if he hears us from his side, we have the request we've made. As far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations. Now, Abraham's still didn't, hadn't received what God had decided was his. So there's nothing more God can do. Abraham now has to position himself to receive. He's got to plug it into the outlet in order to receive what God had already decided to give. The electric company already decided that you can have 110 volts and enough wattage in that toaster to heat your bread into toast. They've already decided that, assuming you paid your bill. They've already decided that. It's right there at the wall. But just because they decided that doesn't mean you've got toast. You've got to make the connection. Again, connecting the toaster isn't earning the toast. It's making the connection that allows the power company to empower the toaster to answer your request. As for me, God says, I have made you a father of many nations. God thinks big. Now here's what Abraham had to learn in order for him. Now now let's think a second about what God's telling him because it fits in what we're talking about. When God came to Abraham and spoke to him, Abraham was 75 years old. He was past the age of productivity, if you understand what I mean. His wife was also past the age, and even if she wasn't, 
the Bible tells us she was barren. She had been unable to conceive even before she was past the age. So there's three strikes against them. And this is the beginning of the baseball season, which we may not want to think about. But three strikes and you're out. So in his mind, he's out. God comes to talk to him in Genesis 15, and Abraham can only think, well, you know, God enters into a covenant, and Abraham can think, well, I don't even have an heir here, and the only heir I've got is my major servant, Eleazar, and God brings him out and has him lie down and look at the stars because God's expanding his hope. God, first of all, has to increase his hope, his expectancy, to get him to dream beyond his finite little possibility of what's possible. Abraham's mind is thinking, look, I've never seen anybody our age have children. Not only that, she could never have, this can't happen, and yet this God's talking to me about what do you want? Maybe, just possibly, he can find a way to either bless this Eleazar, my servant, or find some way that I can end up having a child. And God says, forget that, I want to show you how I think. Because you see, his destiny was tied to God getting him to believe bigger. Not only his destiny, our destiny was tied to God getting Abraham to begin to think in the terms that God thinks in. Is it possible that someone else's destiny is tied to our being willing to learn to think in the same terms God thinks in? Our destiny, somebody else's destiny, that, that we, we look at them and say, there's no way they could ever get saved. They're such a reprobate. They're such a drunk. They're such a whatever it is. There's no way they can be saved. So I'm not even going to try. Maybe God needs us to learn to think in His terms of what He can do because God wants to reach them, but He needs someone who will stand up and begin to think in His terms and think in His terms of what He can do. So I had to get Him out and look at the stars. He had to get his mind off of himself. He'd get his mind off of thinking what he thought in terms of what were possible. He says, look at the stars, Abraham. Wow. It's the Milky Way. Look at that. Wow. Can you count them? No way. He says, they're innumerable, aren't they? Yes. So shall your descendants be. Wow. Wow. And I look at her, and I look at me, and I look at her, and I look at me, and I look up there, ain't no way that's going to happen. And this is why I believe it didn't happen right away. He had to grow in faith. See, God worked with him. He had to grow in faith. He had to grow in faith. He had to grow in faith. And what did he begin to learn about God? Romans summarizes it into two major things that he learned about God. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence or sight of him whom he believed. And this is what he learned about God. God who gives life to the dead. So we're talking about what can God do? 
what's God able to do? Well, the first thing Abraham learned is he can take something that's dead and call it alive. And that's exactly what he needed because her womb was dead and his loins were dead. And God now, God, God who said, out of that woman in your body, you will produce a son. And now he's beginning to realize, but the God who said, as far as I'm concerned, that stuff, that God's able to produce life out of death. But he goes beyond that. Because to do that, you've got to have some body there that was alive before, and you resuscitate it. But he goes beyond that. Not only that, but who calls things which do not exist as if they do exist. In other words, not only can God bring something that was dead and make it alive, He can take something that's never existed and call it into existence. Not only can He do it, He's done it. Because Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 said by faith, and it takes faith to know this, by faith we understand that the worlds, that's not just this world, all the known universe was framed, was hung out there, was measured out there, was created, was bang, put out there, however it was. It was put out there by the word of God when he said let there be. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 1, 3 says, and all of that that's out there is still held out there. It's not like there was one word that went out, boom, it's there, and now it's kind of floating around on its own. It exists. It is held into place. Energy itself. Energy itself, the very element of the universe, is literally the power of that word eons ago. And Hebrews 1.3 says, all of this world, the universe, is still held together by the word, not the power of his word, by the word, the expression of his power. So can God do it? Woo! I want to go on with this because this, one time I was meditating on this and this just, this will help you when it comes to healing and things. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who we believe, even God who gives life to the dead and calls things which do not exist as though they exist. Verse 18, who I'm going to speak this out of the New American Standard because that's how I learned it. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become. Notice the order. He had to believe before he could become. In hope against all natural hope. In hope against all natural hope, he still believed in order that he might become. He believed in order that what God said might become His. He believed in order that it might become, according to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, 
He considered not his own body. Some translations say he considered it because in some versions that word not's there in some versions, it doesn't matter. In other words, in fact, one translation says face to face. What he's saying is it, doesn't ma- it didn't matter to him what his body said because you know his body was talking to him. He's looking at hers and he's looking at his and going, it's talking to him, saying, this is not going to happen. It's, it's not natural. It's not going to happen. So his body was saying no. He did, without becoming weak in faith, he considered not his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old at this time and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, verse 20, yet he did not waver at the promise of God. In spite of what his body told him, in spite of what his senses told him, it didn't change what he believed. Why? Because what he believed was not founded on what his senses told him. What he believed was founded on the promise God made, and his body, whether it got older, more shriveled up, drier, shorter, weaker, it didn't matter because it didn't change what God said. Oh, it gets better. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Nor did he waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Dawned on me one day. His body is telling him, I don't got it anymore. And he's looking at her and says, you don't either. And you couldn't produce a child before. I mean, every time he gets up, every time he goes to bed, every time, you know, they look at each other, it's just, you're beautiful, but you're not, you know, we're getting older. We can't do this. We know because they tried to help God out. And they produced Ishmael, which we're still dealing with. But if God can raise the dead, and beyond that, can just speak words that create things, what does my body have to do with that? What does what my body can do or not do have to do with whether God's promise is going to happen or not? See, my mind, I've had to learn, my mind tries to figure out how's it going to happen. It just, that was the way I was trained. And my mind is analytical, and if, what I've had to realize is if I can't figure it out, it's hard to believe. But that's why it's by faith, not by understanding. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed. Not by science, not by Hubble telescopes. They're wonderful for seeing what's out there, but they can't tell you how it was framed. It's not going to happen as hard as they try, because it's by faith that we believe it and that we know it. What does, what does the condition of my body, what does the doctor's test results, what does the x-ray, what does any of that have to do when God can raise the dead and call things into existence? The church we went to in Tulsa, one of the assistant pastors had perfect hearing in both ears. The problem is he had no eardrum in one of them. There was no eardrum, but he could hear. How can that happen? Because God said, hear. 
Matthew 15, it says the, maim, the lamed and the maimed walk. Lamed means your limbs are injured. Maimed means they're missing. You understand Jesus prayed for people and their legs grew out? I don't mean an inch or two. I mean, whoosh. I've known of healing services where eyes grew out, teeth grew out. Why should that shock us when it's God's Word that we're simply believing to that situation? So the issue here is, can God do this? Well, the God Abraham learned to know is a God that can raise the dead and can call things into existence that never existed before. So why would a headache and cancer be one harder than the other to God who can call things into existence that never existed before? This is why Jesus fell asleep on the back of the boat in the storm. He wasn't worried about whether the boat sank or not. He didn't need a boat. When you can walk on water, the boat's nice, but it's not necessary. It's a convenience. But in their thinking, all their whole experience was, if you have no boat, you go down. But they weren't in a boat with their experience. They were in a boat with the Son of God to whom all things were possible. So we're seeing now that in order to have prevailing prayer, we've got to be willing to renew our mind to think in terms of what God can do, because that's what we're talking about now, by what He says He can do, not what other people tell us He can do or we think we can do, He can do. We've got to be willing, as we're learning on Sunday, to set aside my preconceived ideas of God, which I may not even be aware I have, until I run into what God's Word says and I have trouble with that. Because God's Word is the truth. And if I'm having trouble with it or struggling with it, that means that I have an image of God that doesn't line up with His Word. So I've got to be willing to let go of the image and allow the Spirit of God to take this Word and show me who He is through the knowledge of God. There's so many scriptures that talk about growing in grace, growing in peace, growing in this through the knowledge of God. That means it's one of our projects is to get to know Him. Not just close to Him, but what He's like. What can He do? God, can you handle this? But see, if we don't come to that place, then we will set our expectations in human terms, the best we know, and then we won't prevail because our hope won't be set at God's level. It will be set at our level. We'll, we'll, we'll stop here. We'll pick up here next time because there's some other examples of this I want to look at. And then we'll move into how to... We're going to move into how do I know whether I'm really in faith or not because the Bible tells us how we can tell whether we're really in faith or not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. We trust your precious Holy Spirit has begun to enlighten us as he was called here to do. Lord, we need to expand what we think you can do, what we know you can do, what we believe you can do. There's some of us here in this room tonight that are facing either in our own lives or our family or our 
work situations, absolutely impossible looking situations. And some of us, we may not realize that we may still go through the motions, but we've given up. We've come to accept where things are, and we may pray because it's the only hope we feel we have, but we really don't believe that anything's going to change. We pray tonight, Father, that what we've heard will not just encourage us to stand up again and to come back to you again, but we ask the precious Holy Spirit to engage with us in that, to strengthen us in our inner man, that Christ indeed may dwell in our hearts through faith. Thank you so much for your precious word. We confess to you, Father, that we have attitudes towards you or beliefs about you or limitations that we placed on you. Some of us that have gotten older have just stopped dreaming. We've just learned to accept things the way they are and kind of going through the motions. Challenge us by your spirit. For, Lord, there are things that you need us to come to you for. There are people that you desperately need us to come and seek you for that may look impossible when we look at them with our natural eyes. But you're drawing us to pray for them, to intercede for them, to call on them to be delivered from the bondages that they've been in for years and years and years. We thank you again for the testimonies that we heard at the beginning. Lord, as we see you deliver people from 40 years, 40 years of sin, 20 years of sin, There's nothing that's not possible to you if we'll just believe. And so we come to you tonight, Father, and tell you that we're willing, we're willing to renew our mind, to change how we see you and what we know of you. By your precious spirit, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.